Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Derek. If I haven't met you, I would love to. I'm the pastor here, and um, I'd love to find some time that we could meet. Uh, we are in the middle of uh, a series on the life of David. So if you're just joining us now, you've joined us in the middle of the life of really one of the most famous characters in the Bible, one of the most important characters in the Bible. And we've said this a few times, one of the reasons why David is so important is because he really sets the stage for Jesus. He sets the stage for the anointed one, the king, the Messiah, the king of all things, the king of the entire universe before whom all nations and people will bow. What we're going to really deal with today is whether or not this king can be trusted. I was speaking with a friend the other day who was talking about, she's from a, a South American country and had just really moved in the last few years to the United States. And one of the things that she was so excited about, about being in the United States, is that she could trust people. When the cashier gave change back, she could trust that it was the right change. She could trust that people would actually obey the traffic laws and not just go on red. And it was so nice for her to say, wow, we live in a place where I can actually trust that idea of trust and whether or not we can trust the Lord is really at the center of this text. If you've got a Bible, you can open, you can open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're seeing here the anointing of David as king over all Israel. It's also in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us and brought, and, and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and the king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David can't come in here. But nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold. He called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful. We don't just say that because it's something nice to say. We are thankful for your word because it is your word that has power. We ask that you would act in that power today to change our hearts, to push on us where we need to be pushed on, to remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness so that we might trust you more deeply and love you more fully today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, really, as I said, we're going to be dealing with this question, can the Lord be trusted to come through? Will God come through? Can He be trusted? Can I actually put my trust in Him for all things? That's a big question. 
Maybe that's a question that you're really wrestling with in your life right now. If you would not call yourself a Christian, maybe that's the question that's really standing in the way of you making Jesus king in your life, is wondering, is God really going to come through? Is he really the one who is going to do what he says? And if you are a Christian, my guess is you're dealing with this question probably all the time and you don't even know it. Because whenever we're seeing unfulfilled desires, whenever we're feeling the confusion of life and the, you know, having to make different decisions and not knowing what to do, whenever we're feeling the difficulty of life kind of around us, we're, we're really asking that question underneath. Can I really trust that the Lord is going to do what he says, that he's going to fulfill his promises? Can I actually trust him? We deal with a lot of unresolved desire in our life, don't we? Right? I want to be loved, but I feel alone. Or I want to find fulfillment in my work, but right now it feels like I'm spinning my wheels or like I'm underappreciated. I really deeply desire for my family to be close, but right now there's a rift. I don't know what to do with this body that I have to keep dealing with all the time or with this repetitive sin that I have to keep dealing with all the time. And I want it deeply to change. And we're often wondering, is that ever going to happen? Is anything ever going to change? Or maybe the question in your mind is not as much what's going to change, but really what do I do next? I've got these choices before me, and it's not really clear what to do. It feels like I live in gray area most of the time. How do I decide well? If you are, um, if you are a male around my age, you undoubtedly remember the books Choose Your Own Adventure. Remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you have a hole in your life that needs to be filled. Because uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books were just the coolest thing in the world. They were these books that were written uh, in second person. So you were the hero of the story. You were the center of the entire plot. You were the one that got to make all the decisions. So you'd come to the end of a chapter, and it would say, you know, if you want to go through that dark cave and see what's on the other side, go to page 27. If you want to go around the cave and up on the hill, go to page 31. And it was a series of these kind of choices throughout the whole book, and they'd lead you down a different path. And so sometimes you'd get to the end of the story, and it was like, you won the girl or the million dollars or you solved the mystery or you slayed the dragon. You won. And then sometimes it was like, well, sorry, you die. Uh, just depending on the choices that you make. You would kind of weave your way through these different places. And like when you're a 10, 11-year-old, it's super exciting to be able to make those choices. But you don't really know what's coming up. <laughs> and the thing that makes it exciting is actually also the same thing that makes it kind of anxious is because oftentimes you've got to make a choice and you don't really have all of the information. You don't really know everything. You don't really have your hands kind of around everything. You don't understand it all, but you still have to do something. Ever been in that kind of place where you feel like, man, I'm just struggling with not being able to get my arms around this situation, not really having any clarity, not really knowing what's going on? I was reading a devotional this week, actually, um, out of the book by Paul Tripp called New Morning Mercies, which I highly recommend. This is what he says in that book. Listen to this quote. He said, you don't have to understand everything in your life. Why? Because the one behind this mystery is gloriously good, 
worthy of not only your trust, but your heart. It really is true that peace in times of trouble is not found in figuring out your life, but in worshiping the one who has already figured it out. That's really the theme of the verses that we just read, is that God can be counted on. Even in the times where we don't figure out, we don't know if we can figure it out, even the times it feels like all of these desires are still kind of laying latent and unfulfilled, even in times where it feels like the world is crashing in on us and there's tons of pressure, God can actually be counted on to be who he says he is and to do what he says he'll do. We're going to really just walk through this story and even a bigger picture of the story of the Bible. Because this story of where David is here actually fits in with a larger story that's helpful for us to recount. Let me give you a little bit of background on where we are with David, especially if you're just joining us. David is being anointed king here. He's been uh, proclaimed to be king over the whole country of Israel. But that hasn't been the case, actually, for most of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, back a few weeks ago, we talked about 1 Samuel 16, where David is actually anointed by Samuel, chosen to be the king. David is the youngest of his brothers. He's the least likely suspect for being king. And Samuel comes and tells him, you are going to be the next king of Israel. Now, he does this because Saul, the current king, has been unfaithful to God. Saul, in many ways, is a picture uh, of a person who, in the midst of, of not knowing what to do in the world, in the midst of kind of all those unfulfilled desires and the pressure of life and whatever it is, he turns not to the Lord, but actually to a lot of other things, either to his own power or even sometimes to kind of these uh, ulterior religious motives. He goes and finds mediums and people that will kind of read the tea leaves for him. And because of those things, God has taken the kingdom out of Saul's hands, and he's called David to be the next king. And David is anointed king, we're read, as a youth, which means he's probably around 15 or so when Samuel comes and anoints him. But here's the really key thing. He's not king yet. He has to wait. And then the next thing that happens is that David goes and he, and he defeats the giant Goliath. He wins this great victory for Israel, for the whole army. He's their champion, but he still has to wait. He's still not king. And throughout the, the coming chapters, in fact, really through the end of 1 Samuel, David spends most of his time on the run. He's running from Saul because Saul is envious and angry and he wants to kill David. And so most of the time that we read about David, he's fleeing. He's out outside the city. He's in the wilderness somewhere and he's being hunted down by the king. Well, when we finally get to the end of 1 Samuel, what we read is that Saul and his son Jonathan, who's David's best friend, have been killed in battle. And you would think, okay, great, this is the time David ascends to the throne, but actually not. The political wrangling kind of begins after this time. Because David is actually chosen to be king one little part of Israel, just Judah, and so when we read that, you know, David at Hebron, that's just this one city in Judah that's only a part of Israel. He's made king there, but Ishbosheth, which I know you all almost named your firstborn Ishbosheth, uh, is named king over the rest of Israel. That's one of Saul's sons. And so now you have this divided kingdom and this rivalry and this political wrangling that's kind of taking place. And that's like that actually for a few years until finally we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that David is made king not only over Judah, but of all of Israel. 
But this promise was made like 15 years before. We read that he's 30 when he's made king. Again, most scholars would say probably somewhere around 15 when he's anointed. 15 years is a long time. 15 years ago, Joy and I lived in Austin before we moved to St. Louis, before we moved back to Austin, before we moved to Baton Rouge, before we moved to New Braunfels. We had two kids. I was working in marketing. I had no clue I'd be a pastor. Like, a lot can happen in 15 years. If you think back on your life 15 years ago, my guess is it was pretty different than it is right now. But here's the beauty of it, is that God's promises are not bound by time. They don't just run out. There's no statute of limitations on God's promise. He has anointed David, David king, and what we read here in 2 Samuel 5 is like God just shouting to David and shouting to us, you can count on me. I actually keep my word. You can trust me because I do what I say. You can count on me, David. You can count on me, Israel. You can count on me, church. This is who I am. It's beautiful, isn't it, to see? But you know, that's actually not the whole story because what's going on here actually has even bigger implications on God's faithfulness. We read after David is, you know, anointed king and he's king over all of Israel, the next thing that he does is he goes and he fights a battle in Jerusalem. And we're told at this time that Jerusalem is not an, an Israelite territory. The city is actually inhabited by some other folks. Remember what they are? The, the Jebusites. That's who live in Jerusalem at this time. And that's an interesting thing. I want you to just take that word, Jebusites, and just kind of plant it in the back of your mind because we've actually heard about the Jebusites before. Let me rewind us all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 12 where God calls Abraham and he tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to use you to work my blessing, my mission in the world. I'm going to make you into a great nation and you're going to fill this land, and I'm going to call you to be the vehicle of my blessing to the world. I am renewing all things. I am actually ridding the world of sin, and I am going to renew everything at some point, and you are going to be the way that I'm going to do that. That's what he tells, that's what he tells uh, Abraham. And if you fast forward then to, uh, to chapter 15 uh, of Genesis, you get God making a covenant with Abraham. And this is what he tells them. I'm not only going to use you to bless the world, but you're going to do it from a particular place. You're going to do it from the land of Canaan. And listen to how uh, Genesis 15 finishes. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. I'm supposed to humorously insert mosquito bites at this point. Uh, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and then listen to the last one, and the Jebusites. So the Jebusites are actually the people occupying the land that God has given to Abraham, that he's promised. So why are they still in Jerusalem? by the time of David. Well, fast forward a little further to Joshua. The book of Joshua recounts the time that God did lead his people into this land and conquered all of the land of Canaan. Well, most of the land of Canaan. But Joshua and his people were not completely faithful to do all the things that God had said. 
and they didn't drive everybody out like God had called them to. And so we actually hear this in Joshua 15. Here's Joshua 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So the Jebusites have been dwelling in Jerusalem for thousands of years, even though God had promised Abraham that he was going to give that land to his people. But do you hear what's happening here? In David, God is saying, oh, by the way, remember that promise? It's happening. By the way, you can count on me. He's fulfilling his promise not just to David here, but to Abraham He is fulfilling his promise to his people that was spoken thousands of years before. And David, the king, the anointed one, is actually acting in the wonderful way of fulfilling God's promises to not just him and his people, but to all of Israel. The promise even that he made to Abraham. It's a big promise. But it actually gets even bigger. In fact, we've got to go all the way back almost to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall of mankind. Here's the short recap. God makes man in his image. He makes Adam and Eve in his image. He tells them, you're going to be my representatives in the world. Go fill the world with my glory. You're going to reflect me in my glory in all of the world. So go and enjoy it and have fun doing it. But instead of wanting to be reflections of God... They succumb to the temptations of the serpent to be God, and they rebel against the Lord and do the one thing that he's told them not to do. And when God then is talking to Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he's kind of handing out curses, he embeds this promise in the curse that he's making to the serpent. This is actually what he tells Eve. He says, you know, to Eve, yes, there will be a curse. You will have trouble in childbearing, but you will have children And one day you will have a descendant, an offspring, a seed, who will crush this serpent's head. And even though the serpent will strike his heel, he will crush the serpent's head. Theologians for centuries have called this the proto-evangelium because we like fancy words. It really just means the gospel beforehand, the first gospel. It was the gospel or at least the hints of the gospel all the way back in the very beginning. It was like a little hint in the beginning of what things were going to be like in the end. And what God is telling Eve and what he's telling us is someday I'm going to make it right. Someday I'm actually going to strike where it really counts. When I was a kid um, in middle school, I rode the bus back and forth, um, you know, to school and it was great. The bus dropped me off right at my house and one day as I was coming home from school, bus dropped me off at my driveway. I'm walking up to my front door and we had a little, little walkway up to the front door with, with monkey grass on the side. You know, monkey grass, you know, long kind of ornamental grass. And as I was in the midst of kind of walking up to my door after school, whistling or something dumb like that, you know, I caught out of the corner of my eye a snake. And, you know, I mean, as a kid, I I was just frightened of any snake. But this was actually a frightening snake. It was a big copperhead, like a pit viper, a venomous, dangerous snake. So I hightail it, you know, the other way and go in the back door and go find my mom, 
who's you know, the only person in the house and the only other person in the house more afraid of snakes than me. And uh, my mom, in just this you know, wonderful courage, uh, goes in, shivering, I think, probably, into the garage and grabs the hoe and goes out armed, ready to kill this snake. You know, she is going to be so tough. And it was really fun watching my mom kind of try, but try is the operative word here because she took this hoe and, I mean, she hacked at this snake over and over and over and she would just body blow, body blow, body blow, and it did literally nothing to this snake. And so finally my mom says, you know, we've kind of reached our, our, our last hope, and, uh, and she says, okay, I want you to go get Mrs. Corbett. So Mrs. Corbett was the lady who lived on the other side of the street who was like, just kind of legendary, older, awesome, like could probably eat you for lunch or do anything, maybe lift a car, you know, or she was kind of equal parts, like we held her in honor, but also like, I don't really know if I want to talk to her. That was Mrs. Corbett, okay? So I go up and knock on the door, tell her the explanation, what's going on. She comes over, and this is great. The first thing that she says is, well, you're never going to kill a snake that way. And she takes the hoe from us, and she flips it over, right, so that the little metal bar that's connecting the, you know, the handle to the, to the hoe part is, is down, and then she just starts going to town on the snake's head. And within minutes, it had stopped moving. So you can't kill a snake with the body blows, You actually have to get the head. And this is the thing that God tells Eve and tells us, is that there will be many times, actually, when your adversary will strike, and it will feel like things are over. And there will be many times where you will respond with body blows, and it will feel like you're fighting back. But really, what it's going to take is a real strike at the head. And this is the beautiful story of the gospel, is that all throughout the Bible, mankind comes up with lots of body blows and comes up with lots of times where it seems like things are kind of going bad, right? God calls Abraham to be the guy that's going to to work his blessing in the world, but guess what? Abraham doesn't even have one kid, much less a number of kids. Abraham finally grows into that nation, and they end up in this land of Canaan? No, not so much. They end up in slavery. And then God calls us people to come and take the land, and they are totally faithful? Not so much. Not really faithful. And God calls a king to lead his people, and he's a great king? Not so much. And over and over and over, we see this deep opposition, and we're left worrying like, man, is this promise ever going to be fulfilled? Is, is there ever going to be this offspring, this king who's going to come, this warrior who's actually going to make everything right? And there's body blow, body blow, body blow. And finally in David, we see, okay, there's a good king, the kind of king that's supposed to be on the throne. He's not perfect by any means, but what he does is he sets the stage for the real king who's going to come, the real king who is going to strike the serpent where it counts, who is going to take the blow to the head, who is actually going to make things right once and for all. It's the king, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, who in the most unlikely fashion (laughs) strikes this death blow with his own death. He comes to say, I'm going to be the champion that's going to win the fight by laying down my own life. But in doing so, he defeats death. He defeats sin. 
He is the champion of all. He defeats the serpent finally and fully. Friends, Jesus is faithful. When we look at the cross, what we hear God saying is, you can trust me. I will do what I say. You can put your hope and your faith in me. You can lean all of it on me because I can take it. It was a Scottish missionary sent to this remote island with this tribe of cannibals. He was there to teach them about Jesus. A lot of people say the church will devour you. This, this was for real, okay? These were like people that really could devour him. Uh, and he was there to translate the Bible for them. And as he was translating the Gospel of John, he realized that in their language, they didn't have a word for belief or trust. There was no word that he could use to translate that. And he was one day pondering this, and he was leaning back in his chair, okay, his feet off the ground, all of the weight on these two little legs of his chair. And he realized something, and he asked very quickly his friend, hey, what's the word for what I'm doing right here? And his friend gave him a word that means to lean all of your weight upon. He said, that's it. That's what trust is. That's what belief is. It's to lean all of our weight upon one thing. We are being called to lean all of our weight on the one who can be trusted, to lean all of our weight on the one who is at the center of the story. And here's, here's the, really, uh, the really insidious thing about the choose-your-own-adventure stories that I mentioned earlier. Remember, they're always about me. They're always about me. I'm the center of the story. I'm the hero. Well, what happens if the hero doesn't do things the way that they're supposed to be done? One really interesting story, this one that came out, it's called UFO 5440. I think that was what it was called. And, uh, and it, it's notable in this series because it, it's this weird story, like you end up on this UFO and you've got to make all these choices and you're, you're searching for this paradise. And what you want to be is this beautiful paradise land where you live happily ever after and everything's great. And there is actually a page in that book that describes this paradise, but there's no other pages leading to it. None of the choices that you make after each chapter ever actually lead you to this. They're all bad choices. You never get to paradise. The only way to find it is just by flipping through the book and cheating. But it's really a pretty good example, I think, of what happens when you take this idea to the extreme. If I'm the hero of my own story, it's probably going to break down on me at some point. And what the Bible says is that we're not the hero. God is. We have a wonderful place in this story, but it is his story. We have a wonderful place to be in this story, a place that really does engage us, a place that calls us to find fulfillment, and a place that enables us to really work and really love and really connect. But it's not our story. It is God's story. And as Paul Tripp said, we quoted earlier, once we start moving ourselves away from our story and we realize that we don't have to have it all together, we don't have to understand everything, we simply need to come and worship the one who already does understand it. Worship the one who already does know. This is the God who has called us to put our trust in him. Let me leave you with a question that we can ponder for a few minutes. Where has God shown himself to be faithful in your life? Where has he shown you that he can be trusted? We've just heard the big story of the Bible, of that message ringing over and over, but it's probably in your life too. Let's just spend a few minutes just maybe making some notes. 
asking the Lord to show you not only the times that he has been trustworthy in the past, but to then increase your trust for him now. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for this wonderful story, a story of your faithfulness even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, a story of your faithfulness to maintain your promise even in the midst of lots of opposition. Lord, a story of the fact that you can be counted on even when it seems like it's taking a long time. Lord, deepen our trust today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.